You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome to 7MA Deal Talk. Today, I'm here with Barry Jacobson, longtime insurance executive, and I'm here in Bethesda, Maryland with Barry. And Barry, I've been looking forward to meeting with you and speaking with you about some of the trends going on in the insurance industry. The insurance industry, at least from our perspective, is a is an interesting one. It really wraps up a lot of different issues that are going on in today's market, ranging from big data and analytics. It's very easy to look at an insurance company and think, wow, there's a monolithic amount of data residing within an enterprise. And you, you would imagine, unless you took a sophisticated look at it, that it would be an industry that could easily transform and leverage big data and artificial intelligence and all these other words to to help sell products to consumers. But I think as, you, as you'll describe, that's been a little bit trickier than people have imagined. In addition to that, insurance does seem to have a very complex distribution channel. And when you think about the internet and some of the disruption that has occurred, you look at the obvious case of Amazon, et cetera, and you look at the distribution channel that the insurance industry has, I think there's people for a while who have thought that the insurance agency distribution was sort of ripe for disintermediation, but for a variety of reasons, which we'll talk about, that's been a difficult and maybe not even desirable thing to do. And then also a very interesting topic is the some of the ethics and really legality issues around DNA testing and other genetic testing to help underwriting decisions and what some of the implications are there. So for a variety of reasons, it's a it's a fascinating topic to to talk about. So it's nice to be here with you. And just I'd love for you to introduce yourself. But Barry is currently with Paradigm Partners, and among other things, was previously president International Life at Chubb, formerly Ace. And interestingly, former math teacher, as well as the founder of Math Motivators, a charitable organization that provides free math tutoring programs. And I'd love to learn more about that later. But Barry, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you for having me. Well, thank you, Leroy. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And, and thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, I spent almost 40 years in the life insurance industry. And started off in my career in the product development side and spent many years in product development. And then eventually, I ran the uh, U.S. life insurance business for travelers. And as you mentioned, I was the president of uh, International Life at Ace, which is now Chubb. I actually built that business from scratch. And and when I left uh, Ace, they, they were selling in 27 countries. They had uh, insurance businesses in 27 countries around the world. A few years ago, I joined Paradigm Partners. We spend most of our time helping insure techs break into the life insurance industry. All five partners were executives in the insurance business. So we, we know a lot of people at the C-suite level, and we also know how the business works from the inside. How did you guys meet? Did you guys know each other previously, or how did that happen? Now, the life insurance industry is, a, is, is really a small network. I worked for two of my 
partners at various points in my career and worked with the other two at other companies. And so uh, we all have connections with each other over the last 40 years and have known each other. And it's kind of neat that we've come together this way. And uh, we have a lot of fun working together and a lot of laughter, but we also have the capability and the knowledge to help uh, these insured techs break into the insurance business. Good stuff. So one of the, the themes I touched on at the beginning was the whole notion of selling products directly to consumers, this whole direct to consumer concept. And it seems like in many ways, the holy grail for insurance companies to be able to achieve that. What, how would you describe that initiative in today's market? What's the adoption rate? What are some of the, the, the barriers to entry there? Yeah, uh, Leroy, you know, life insurance have been very slow to respond to the direct to consumer market. And people say that life insurers in general are slow to respond to any new trends. But uh, for this one, there are actually some some good reasons for the hesitancy of the life insurance business and and be happy to chat with uh, with you about some of the reasons why it is slower to develop than most other industries. Let's first look at it from the consumer side. Let's look at direct-to-consumer for life insurance sales from the consumer side. First, it is said that life insurance is bought and not sold. Well, why is that? You buy a car and you know you need to have car insurance. You have to go out and buy car insurance. You buy a house, you go to get a mortgage, you know you'd have to have home insurance. You're required to have home insurance for that mortgage. But how many people actually wake up every morning thinking about, hey, I think I want to go buy life insurance today. And it's not very common. So the market is still dominated by life insurance agents. And the reason is without them knocking on people's doors or making contacts or talking to friends and family or whatever and explaining to them why it's necessary to buy life insurance and the purpose of it and how to go about it. A lot of people don't like to think about life insurance because you talk about your own mortality and how many people want to have that discussion. So life insurance agents have a really tough job just to get people to think about buying life insurance. And so in a direct-to-consumer market, it's not easy to get people to log on and think about it and to say, oh, let me do some research. I want to buy some life insurance today. So the education or persuasive, I guess another way to put that, persuasive sale component of actually selling a life insurance product makes it a little difficult to do that over the web right now. Oh, absolutely. And the insurance companies that are trying to figure this out, one of the biggest hurdles and and they're working through this is how do we educate them through the web? How do we get people, how do we get access to the right people at the right time and convince them that they need to buy life insurance without an intermediary? That's not easy. Yeah. So right when you say right time, right place, that does conjure up ideas like, okay, if, if, if an individual is going through a certain event, whether it be, I don't know, life event, like a wedding, perhaps a, a death, et cetera, that would be identifiable somehow through some interaction on the web. I suppose in those ways you could get at the buying decision a a little bit better, but those are probably few and far between or difficult, I guess, to, to assemble for an insurance company. Yeah. There were typical life events. Uh, I'll give you an example. My son and daughter-in-law just had a baby and that's an obvious one. And my son actually came to me because he knows I'm in the life insurance industry. And he said, I want to buy life insurance for me and my wife. 
now that the baby's born? And how do I go about this? What do I do? I, I, this is confusing to me. Uh, help me think this through. And so, yes, there are very a number of events like having a baby, buying a house, uh, lots of things that would cause you to think about uh, buying insurance for yourself. Yeah. But nonetheless, even with those events, it's you still require, in today's market anyway, a proactive agent mo- agency model to to sell the product, and that's what's caused the direct to consumer, or to, or at least the effectiveness of that model is making the direct to consumer approach at least in the market shares not not much at all compared to that approach is that is that a fair way to say it yes that's that's very true it's uh, the agents are still dominating the market and it is difficult to sell but there is another item from the consumer side life insurance is very complicated and maybe it doesn't have to be but today it is give you an example how many people understand the difference between an indexed U- universal life product a variable universal life product, a traditional universal life, a whole life, and an interest-sensitive whole life product. They're all available on the market. And how many people truly understand the differences between those and which one is best for them? Even term insurance, which most people think is the simplest life insurance product, and it is, do I buy a 10-year term product? Do I buy a 15-year level term? Do I buy a 20-year level term? Do I buy increasing term? Do I buy decreasing term? Do I buy, I buy level term? What about the riders? It's very complicated riders that go with term insurance, long-term care riders, waiver premium riders. Which ones are right for me? And, and the bigger question is, how much life insurance should I buy? You know, there's some rules of thumb, generally seven to 10 times whatever your income is, but that's just a guideline. People are always thinking about how do I figure out how much insurance is right for me? Do I buy a million? Do I buy a half a million? You know, what's the right amount? So it is pretty complicated from a product standpoint, but it's also complicated as to the purpose of why you're buying. And People may think, oh, no, this is simple. You have a baby, you need life insurance to protect them if you die prematurely. Sure. But a lot of insurance sold today is for estate planning. When you're doing complicated wills and trusts, you put insurance with that as part of it. Charitable giving, life insurance is used in very complex charitable giving ways. Business insurance key person insurance for the the senior execs at a company. And probably the biggest reason permanent life insurance is sold today is for the tax advantages. There are very unique tax advantages on the inside buildup of cash values and the death benefit, which make it very attractive. So not only are the products complicated, but the reasons to buy are typically very complicated for life insurance. Right. What's the inside buildup? What is that? Yeah, the inside buildup is uh, cash value. So if you buy a universal life product, you're buying death benefit protection, but you're also, it's a cash savings vehicle. And the difference between, let's say, life insurance and an annuity, everybody knows that if you buy an annuity, it's to save money for your retirement. You can do the same thing within a life insurance contract. You can get both. You can get death benefit protection in case you die, And you can build up a cash value for your retirement or education or whatever you need. The big difference is with an annuity, you can't avoid the taxes, the income taxes. And it 
gets taxed at your personal income tax rate, not capital gains rate, at some point, either when you take the money out or when you die. With life insurance, you can avoid taxes forever. You can make it tax-free because when you die, the life insurance gets paid to your estate tax-free. Got it. Got it. So it sounds like there's a, just to summarize where, what we discussed so far, there's a few things that make the direct-to-consumer approach difficult. One, the complexity of the product and the fact that there's many different uses for it. It requires some education and counseling, and that's difficult to achieve on the internet. And therefore, you need an agent model to go out and perform this education and, and more proactive sales approach. What else is what, what else are barriers to, to the direct-to-consumer approach? Yeah, and, and before I go there, let me tell you a quick story to, to illustrate the complicated nature of life insurance. When I was running the life insurance business for travelers, they had merged with Citibank. And at that time, uh, Bob Rubin was one of the senior officers in Citibank, and he came to visit us one day, and he spent the day visiting the life company and the property casualty company. And at the end of the day, after we had educated him on insurance, he called all the officers together. And I will never forget the first thing he said when he brought us all together. The first thing he said was, I don't understand your business. Now, the interesting thing is, for those of you who don't know Bob Rubin, he was secretary of the treasury (laughs) And before that, he was the CEO of Goldman Sachs. So you're talking about one of the brightest financial minds the country has saying to a group of us in the insurance business, I have no idea what you guys do and what your product's about. And this is very complicated to me. Think about that. If Bob Rubin has trouble understanding it, how is somebody that's booming up on the internet then doesn't have that kind of financial background trying to figure out to how to buy life insurance, going to understand the business. Right. Right. Yeah. To think that if, uh, with, with a product that complex in an industry that complex, I guess it's natural to see why there's some difficulty in distilling this down into something that can be bought easily over the internet. Nonetheless, if someone ever figures it out, there's a big market for it. So I guess that's why a lot of people, including yourself, are, are, are thinking about it. Yeah, I, I agree, Leroy. And, and um, you know, we've talked about why from the consumer's viewpoint, it may be difficult, but let, let's switch hats a little bit and let's talk about it from, uh, from the life insurer perspective, which is my background, uh, thinking of, of this from, from that perspective. It's a couple of important points. The first is most of the business still comes from agents, as we've discussed, And they've become a powerful group over time. And let's say I'm a life insurer and I want to get into the direct-to-consumer business. Well, that means I'm bypassing my agents. And how are they going to feel about that? Not, Not too happy. Should I care? Well, in today's insurance market, they can sell products with any company typically. Right. So if I come out with a direct-to-consumer business and they're not happy about that, they'll just go sell with the next guy. They, the next guy's got the same products I've got and they'll go sell with him. And I'm risking my whole business for getting into something that's fairly new and risky, a risky venture to get into. 
Right. We call that channel conflict. Yeah. Yeah. An- another, another phrase would be, you hear people say, well, cannibalize thyself before someone else does it. That's an easy thing to say, but actually doing that and jeopardizing an existing path to market is a pretty risky proposition. It's interesting. I- I've heard people predict the agency demise for, I don't know, a long time. And I'm kind of, it's actually funny. I'm actually kind of rooting for these guys to stick around because it's a very durable group and they, and they use, they're very clever, I guess, and, and persistent at maintaining a client base. And, and I've even seen situations where they're actually developing their own online techniques and their own lead generation capabilities online, not quite in a director consumer model, but as a way to develop leads and take care of clients, et cetera. So it seems like some of this is actually being, I don't, I don't want to say passed down to, to the distribution channel, but, but it does seem like they're adopting it. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, Leroy. There are lots of uh, obstacles in the way for direct to consumer, but everybody believes this is the future yeah. and the agents understand that. And so they've been trying to figure this out and yes, they are building their own direct to consumer and offering it to uh, their customers as another way to buy insurance. Yeah. Another dynamic of the of the insurance industry is, from a technology perspective, delivering the customer experience necessary for a direct-to-consumer product to be successful. W- what is the status of, of insurance company IT systems and IT environments? Because you would think that in order to do that, in order to capture personas and deliver the right customer service experience, you're going to need some relatively sophisticated and modernized IT environment in order to do that. Where where, where does that stand? Well, good question. Here's the good news. All that technology is out there and available. The issue is life insurers have very old policy administration systems built in the 60s and 70s, most of them, because the life insurance business goes over many years. So you buy a policy in your 30s, you might have a policy for 50 or 60 years, and a company has to administer that. So companies have very old policies on very old systems. However, the technology is out there. So an insurance company has two choices. Do I spend millions of dollars in a couple of years building the technology to support the modernization of direct-to-consumer, or do I rent it? We're working with a number of insure techs that already have that capability and will offer it and looking to offer it to insurance companies. Outsourcing. Outsourcing. Yeah. Or insurance companies are looking at buying some of those those insure techs, uh, startups that have that capability. All of the technology capability to be able to do direct-to-consumer is available today and being used today. But the question is, once you sell that policy... And if they go on one of these old administration systems, the customers are not going to be happy. They bought it with a click to buy, and all of a sudden they have to communicate with the insurance company by phoning somebody to get information about their policy. So it's not just the sale. It's also the administration. And there are administrative packages out there that will support that. But okay, so all my old business is going to be on this admin system. My newer business that I do direct to consumer is going to be on this system. And then three years from now, somebody's going to come out with something better and I need to buy that. So that is the issue that insurers are facing today on the technology side. Okay. Yeah, it is an interesting facet of the business that you have, but the long tail nature 
of the products. As you say, you could sell a product and you wind up supporting it for decades. And so therefore, when you configure a system to administer that product decades ago, they may have unique features, et cetera, and so forth. And while it may be an old system, at least it works. And then the prospect of migrating all of those old policies onto a new system is an expensive proposition. So therefore, it hasn't been, has not been being done at the same rate you might see in other industries that don't have that same sort of long, long tail phenomena. So that's a, an interesting thing, kind of unique to the, to the insurance space, specifically, specifically life that on the back end, I guess, is getting in the way or at least an impediment anyway to, to direct to consumer. There, there are some, and there, I mean, there always have been these concepts of like middleware, which was, you know, that's a 10 to 20 year old phrase. And now you see things like robotic process automation and other things that have this promise of, okay, I can put these stop gaps or measures in place to automate an existing environment without this big custom application development project, which have some promise and, and, and maybe that will help to some extent. And I know some certain insurance companies have started to adopt, to adopt those types of things. So maybe those kinds of t- technologies will make it so you don't have to do the big $100 million IT transformation project. You can sort of start smaller to solve some, some of these problems bit by bit, but I think that remains to be, remains to be seen. Yeah, uh, Leroy, one of the issues that we should talk about, probably the most important issue in a direct-to-consumer business, is anti-selection. And what I mean by that is if somebody is buying uh, direct-to-consumer, they want to do a click-to-buy. They want to buy it simply. They want to go on online, push some buttons, you know, maybe spend 10 or 15 minutes, and all of a sudden they've got a policy. And they can pay the premium easy and it, and it's done. That's available today, completely available today. But from an insurance company perspective, here's the issue. Let me give you an example. Smokers have two to two and a half times the mortality of non-smokers. So the fair price for life insurance for smokers is significantly higher than what a non-smoker should pay. And in traditional insurance, they do pay a much higher price. Now, insurers go to great lengths to make sure that they find those smokers. They do blood testing. They do urine samples. They do full underwriting to find out who a smoker is because it is such a big difference in price. If you go to -to direct-to-consumer, there's a question on the application. Do you smoke? What if a smoker lies? What if they check the box and say no? Well, here's how the regulations work in the life insurance business. If the life insurance company finds out in the first two years that they lied on the application about smoking, they can raise the price on them. They can't cancel. They can raise the price. But if they find out three years later, they can't? After two years, they're home free. Wow. Yeah. So, and how are they going to find out? They haven't done any testing. They haven't done anything. So what happens? If a company goes out and offers direct-to-consumer and gets lots of smokers who lie on their applications, they'll lose their shirts. They'll be anti-selected against. Now, that's just one example, smoking. What if you got a medical impairment and you say that you don't and you live two more years and the insurance company never knew about that? That's why it's a rigorous process today to get all kinds of medical requirements, blood, urine, 
attending physician statements. Sometimes they have them go for EKGs if they're buying a lot of insurance. We go through extensive lengths to get medical information. Now, that's the fastest field that the insure techs are working in to try to figure that out. How can you get to the point where the life insurance company gets the medical information they need, but it doesn't take weeks and months like it does today? That's the real breaking the code of direct-to-consumer. Is that is that being solved or addressed by way of some IoT approach where people are wear, you know, wearing devices that somehow reveals this information, or how, how, are, how is that being solved? Well, there's lots of ways they're looking at it. There is a company that says they believe they have technology that with face recognition, they can tell if you're a smoker or not. There are companies that we're working with that are collecting medical information, have a collection of medical information that the government has collected on a state-by-state basis, and you can tap into that to get the physician's reports and other medical information on the individual. So there are a number of ways. There's the MIB, which is the Medical Information Bureau, that that has information on if you applied for insurance before and collects information on that. There are a bunch of ways that in real time you can get medical information. But are you getting enough today? No. Are you getting smoker information, which is the biggest one that they're trying to solve right now? No. So can you get everything that you need to get maybe in the future? Yes. Maybe somebody will break the code on that and the life insurance company can get enough information to price a product reasonably. Because why? If you're buying on the internet, what are you expecting? Why are you going to the internet in any industry? You're going for two things. You're going for a great customer experience. And you're going for a lower price. Hey, my son just bought a car. What did he do? He went to the lots and he test drove and he talked to people. And then he came home, got on the internet and bought a car on the internet. Yeah. People typically go to a bookstore. They'll look around the books, they'll read it a little bit, and then they'll go home and they'll buy it on the internet. Why? It's cheaper. What industry do you know that when you buy directly, it's going to be the same price as if you go through um, an agent or most likely it should be a higher price for the reason we've talked about. I don't know of any on the other industry that has to break the code on that in order to bring the price down, has to get enough medical information and technology needs to help them do that so they can offer it at a lower price. It's a great customer experience today buying life insurance. It's out there. You can do click to buy. But the question is, can you also get it at a lower price? Today, the answer is no. Right. And you're saying further, because of any selection, meaning it's possible that, that many of the people who are purchasing online may be smokers, et cetera, or may have things that would cause them to hi- have a higher premium, that carriers are actually at a disadvantage right now, possibly, if people buy online. That's there, what you mean by There's no question that their life insurers are at a disadvantage if the applicant has more information about themselves than the insurance company does. That's why the history of life insurance companies has been, I want to know as much about that person as they know about themselves, so I'm going to do all this testing to find out. And that's what they've done historically. And now the market's come to it and said, I'm sorry, no, 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 that's not the game we play anymore. We're in a new world. That's not how millennials are buying 
products. We want to buy our life insurance online. We want to push a button. We want it. We're not giving you our blood anymore. We're not giving you a urine sample. We're not sending, we're not requesting our doctors to send you the reports. We want it now. We want to push a button and we want a good price for it because you have to be saving money by coming direct to me and cutting out the agent. Right. What I'm hearing from you, Barry, is that in order to make a, I'll call it a smart underwriting decision, that is have sufficient data to assess the risk and therefore price the policy, the carrier needs a few things. One, it would be great to have more data, right, from these other sources that you mentioned, whether it be information that states are collecting, MIBs, et cetera, and so forth. Just access to to more data, which really becomes at that stage a big data issue, an analytics issue, those kinds of things. But even over and above that, for this immediate click-to-buy thing, you also need some adoption of new technologies, meaning IoT wear, wearables or face recognition type things. So it's in addition to getting just more data that currently exists, you also need adoption of new of new technologies. Is that a fair way to put it? Absolutely. And we're seeing that new technology in Paradigm Partners. We see that every day, new technology coming up to do that. And in a way that that these startup companies believe will crack help crack the code on this issue. Right. And you mentioned face recognition and anything else in terms of new technologies that you think will expedite this? Yeah, there's, there's, we're working with a company right now that is uh, looking at epigenetics and it's a very exciting field. And what it is, is think of uh, 23andMe, you give a saliva sample and think about all the medical information that comes out of a saliva sample in 23andMe. Epigenetics is not genetics. It is... Uh, how your behavior over time affects your DNA. So, for example, let's go back to our smoker. With a saliva sample, with epigenetics, you can accurately tell whether somebody was a smoker. Not just in the last couple of days, but over their lifetime, you can know if they were a smoker or not. Now, this is much less invasive than getting a venipuncture for, for blood or collecting urine, or having somebody come out to your house and do all this work on you, or send you to a doctor. All you got to do is spit in a bottle and test. However, and, and that's a great new technology, and I think it will be huge for underwriting life insurance in the future. But here's the problem for direct-to-consumer. You still have to collect that sample. And you have to analyze the sample. So it might not be weeks and months. It might be a week or two to, to get the information. That's not what the new generation of buyers want. They want to push a button and get it now. Right. The other thing is, will they get it at a lower price? Well, they're not getting any more medical information this way than you would get with the blood and urine. You're getting it better. You're getting it faster. You're getting it in a decent way. It's a much better approach. But that doesn't mean you can charge a lower price because you're not getting more medical information than you would be getting. You're just getting a similar medical information in a faster, easier, less invasive way for the customer. Right. So it's still an improved customer experience approach. What happens with price? Not so clear. Well, and the other issue on price is let's go to the other side. Hey, you're saving money. You're coming direct. You're not using the agent. But is that really true? 
what's happening now is an insurance company has to make a decision. Do I spend the millions of dollars creating my own direct-to-consumer technology and lead generation capability and software and everything that's needed for that business, or do I rent it as we described? Well, so it's out there. Plenty of firms are out there. Agents have created it. Yeah, they're going to rent it. Well, guess what? They pay them. When a policy gets sold, they pay a commission to the agent for that policy. Not too dissimilar from what you pay if they sell it face-to-face and and the old-fashioned way. So there still is a pretty big cost either way if they build it themselves, which a few companies are doing or have done, or if they rent it from others. Right. So epigenetics, that's interesting, and it makes me think about some of the things that are going on. You mentioned 23andMe earlier. It does seem like people are more and more open to the whole concept of, I'm going to get my DNA tested. And you know, with 23andMe and some of these other companies, I think there's roughly a thousand of them now that will, that, that will do uh, something similar to that. What, are the, what, what can an insurance company look at as they're making their underwriting decision, like from a legal perspective? Can they clearly, I, I guess the president, they can clearly like look at blood work and make some assessment around smoking and some of these other things. Where are the boundaries in terms of diseases and genetics and things of that nature? Yeah, the, the big hot topic in the industry today is about genetic testing. And federal law allows underwriters to use genetic testing for the individual life insurance business. Not for health insurance, but for the individual life insurance business, an insurance company under federal law is allowed to use uh, genetic testing. However, there are about 17 states that have regulations restricting genetic testing of some kind. And insurers have been hesitant to use it. There's not many that are even using genetic testing, even if they're allowed to, because there's very open questions about that. And will the other states shut it down? Will the federal government at some point pass regulations that will stop it? Just just to step back for a second, the life insurance industry is a heavily regulated business. When we talked about complications in the life insurance business, a lot of it is caused by the heavy regulations. So there are documents that go with life insurance policies that are unreadable because we're required to do certain things in there. There's a lot of those issues. When an insurance company comes out with a new product, people are shocked by this when they hear it. They have to file that product in all 50 states and wait for approval from each of the 50 states before they can sell it. So somebody selling a product in Colorado You may not have it in New Jersey because the regulators in New Jersey have spent a lot of time analyzing it and it's sitting on somebody's desk and has not approved it for sale. And it might be the best product that's out there and you can't get it in New Jersey because the life insurance industry is regulated by the 50 states. So even though there's no federal regulations against it, the states are the focus for regulations for the life insurance business. So while it may be legal from a federal perspective to utilize genetic testing results. It's not, from a practical perspective, probably not being used by anyone, either because A, in the 17 states, it's not okay, or just a fear that someday it may be a problem. People are just people are just not utilizing it. Correct. And that's where epigenetics may come into play. 
the key issue is, will people understand the difference? There is a big difference between epigenetics and genetics testing. And epigenetics should be used in the underwriting process and can be used effectively. And and it makes sense. But will regulators understand the difference and will consumers understand the difference between genetic testing and epigenetic testing? Right. Well, if this is like most trends, it seems like something like that will be an inevitable at some point. I mean, that just seems to be the way things are headed. It seems like people are getting more and more accustomed to having this sort of information out there. Like the whole privacy topic is something that just each generation just gets more comfortable with just releasing more of that. So it seems like an, an inevitable trend at some point. And um, it would seem like as some of these things converge, that is people getting more comfortable with releasing information on themselves, technology improving, all these other things, all, all those things will eventually come together and make the direct-to-consumer approach a viable one for, for, for carriers. Yeah, and, and I would say, Leroy, as we're concluding the concept here, is direct-to-consumer is coming for the life insurance business, even with all the things we just talked about. We just listed a lot of problems. <laughs> a lot of problems. And, and and we didn't even talk about what may be one of the biggest ones, which is lead generation and the technology we're working with. We're working with an insure tech right now that thinks they've cracked the code on lead generation, which means how do you get at those people at the right, the right people at the right time? We talked about that. Yeah. How do you get to the right people at the right time and we're about to go to market in the U.S. with a couple of pilots uh, in the next few months. And that's all built around technology. And this company has been doing it for 10 years in other countries and bringing it to the U.S. And that could be really, really exciting because one of the barriers, big barriers, is lead generation. And how do you get people, the right people at the right time? So if they cross that, it'll happen. What do they do? Are they using social media? or Yes. So like Facebook, correct, et cetera. Correct. Using social media, true time tested over a decade of ability to get to those right customers and put an ad out there at the right time to the right people and very targeted marketing and being successful with it. And now we just have to reproduce that in the U.S., what they're doing elsewhere. Right. So when they put an ad out there, is there also a, a, a buying option or is it click on an ad, they get a phone call or agent follows up or how does that work? Yeah, great, great question. The lead generation right now gets you to another site which educates you on insurance. Like we talked about, yeah. how much insurance do I buy? Now, what they're doing right now with this lead generation and with all of the direct to consumer, and we really haven't talked about this. The only products they're selling that way are the very simple products, right. final needs products, which is for burial insurance and funerals, simple term insurance products is the only thing that's selling right now out there. And that's what they are marketing using the social media for nobody that we know of is trying to sell some of those complex right. products and complex markets using that that type of lead generation. But how much of the market is the term or the oh. more simpler product? Isn't that, is, that's a substantial piece, right? No, by by policy count, maybe, you know, by number of people who buy uh, term insurance is the biggest, but by premium, because the premiums are lower, right. most of the premium is on the permanent type that's used for estate planning and others. And you bring up a really interesting point, which is... Most of the agents have stopped selling lots of term insurance because they don't make enough 
for the customer acquisition to get there. Right. If you think about the commission on a really small premium, is it worth marketing face-to-face and knocking on doors and the customer acquisition costs? So the in typical, the agents aren't that, that upset about going direct to consumer. They're even doing it. And so there's programs, how much insurance to buy and educating about insurance, but it's only on a simple stuff. It's only on the need we talked about, which is you have a baby and you have a need for insurance on premature death. That's the kind of need or to cover funeral costs if uh, premature death occurs. That's the kind of need that's being addressed here, not the tax advantages, not the estate planning, not the charitable giving, not an, not the things that if you asked an agent today, here's what they would tell you. I will be needed long into the future for those kind of sales. I will never be replaced by a direct-to-consumer or by the internet. or the, yeah. the term insurance, yeah. Funeral insurance, yeah. The heavy-duty stuff still needs somebody to give advice. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's a complex sale, and it's difficult to replace that with some sort of automation or online education. That's just a tough one to do. So that, that makes sense. But the more commoditized term life, term policies, it, it you know, it's easier to think about how that could be replaced or, or supplanted by some of the techniques you, you refer to. But somebody will figure it out. Yeah. Somebody will figure out how to get the medical information. Somebody will figure out how to get lead generation for even the more complicated products. Somebody will figure out how to educate or make the product simpler to buy and understand. Somebody will figure this all out. And that somebody will get a huge market share if they can figure it out, have the great customer experience and the lower price. Well, Barry, a lot, a lot of interesting thoughts there. And just back to you real quick. You've had a very interesting career. You've been a lifelong insurance executive. And 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 in addition to that, math teacher. So how, when did you do the math thing? Did you take a break or is that after you were, when did you fit that into your career? Yeah, it's uh, something I've always wanted to do. And, and when I got to the point in my career that I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, and decided that I was going to be a high school math teacher. A lot of my family and friends and others afterwards told me I was having a midlife crisis. <laughs> and that's okay. That's not a bad midlife crisis to have. They're probably yeah. right. I was having a midlife crisis. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to get a a uh, teaching job at a terrific high school in Connecticut. I spent seven years doing that. While I was there, I was on the board of a major life insurance company in the U.S., so I kept myself apprised of what was going on in the industry. I stayed in touch with what was going on. I was a consultant on the side for an insurance company, so I was able to do both, but uh, loved teaching every day. Right. And then I, I know you also do some work with the Actuarial Foundation. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, about um, four years ago, I retired from teaching. So I retired a second time, maybe a second midlife crisis. And I saw a need. Uh, I was teaching in a very wealthy community with kids who had lots of means. And I saw a need in places like Hartford, Connecticut, with kids who don't have the money to hire me as a private tutor like some of the kids in the town I was teaching in were doing, but needed as much help, if not more help. So I joined the board of a school in Hartford 
that was in need and had those kind of kids. And now I'm currently chairman of the board of that organization and they're doing amazing things. But while there, I started co-teaching a class and, and mentoring young teachers. And it hit me one day that the big difference between the kids in the suburbs and the kids in Hartford were the kids in Hartford couldn't afford private tutors. Mm. So I started tutoring them on my own during the school day in the school, and it was a huge success. And so I said, how do I scale this up? And I started a program called Math Motivators four years ago. And we, the first year we brought in 13 UConn students to help me. And it was great and it worked well. And if you roll the clock forward four years, because I'm also on the board of the Actuarial Foundation, whose mission is math education and financial literacy, we are now helping kids in nine cities about to launch five more this next semester. We have about a thousand volunteers that have signed up all over the country to come in. We come in during a school day. We tutor math in Hartford. We're now working with, instead of one school, we're working with 10 schools in Hartford. And the demand is, is off the charts. We can't find volunteers fast enough to provide that support. What's the profile of the person that would be a volunteer? Anybody who can tutor algebra one. Yeah. A lot of what we do is basic skills. You you would be shocked, even in the wealthy communities, kids can't add fractions anymore yeah. and deal with negative numbers and, and all of those kind of things. So we do a lot of that. And so when I go recruiting people and they're worried about the math, I said, can you add fractions? Oh, yeah, I can add fractions. Can you multiply? I can multiply. Can you do negative three minus seven? Yeah, I could do that. You're in. We'll take, <laughs> we'll take you. Anybody who can do basic math, yeah. eighth, ninth grade level is where our sweet spot is right now that, uh, that we focus on. If people listening to this want to help, where should they go to find out more information about where they could do that? Yeah, great, Leroy. Thank you. All they have to do is go to the, the Actuarial Foundation website okay. and uh, look for Math Motivators on there. It's one of four main programs that the foundation does. And we have videos out there, brochures, lots of information and marketing information, and uh, uh, they can get everything they need. We have folks checking in regularly and sending notes to the foundation saying, I'd like to volunteer. Those all come back to me. And I contact people on our, I did it this morning. I had a, somebody this morning in Philadelphia that wants to volunteer, reach out to him and said, you're in. <laughs> Let's, we, we need as many bodies as yeah. we can that are, that are able and interested and wanting to help and make a difference in a kid's life. But is it right now you just have certain cities where the infrastructure is set up? We are in uh, New York. Chicago, Boston, Seattle, Minneapolis, Lincoln, Nebraska, Hartford, Connecticut. We're, we're all over the place. We're about to open up in Des Moines, Iowa, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C. So it's coming. If it's not there, it's coming soon to a town near you. How do you partner with schools? Like, like, how do you, do you, do you have to like introduce yourself to a particular school system or how, how does that work? Yeah. Well, in Hartford, it's been easy lately because we have a reputation and we have principals calling us. Hey, I heard you have this program. Right. We need it. Can you bring it to us? And the answer is right now, well, if we have enough volunteers, we can. And, and so there, and we went to one school last year and they said, we have a lot of kids that need help. We said, we only have enough volunteers to help 20 of them right now. Yeah. So bring 20 and we'll help them. And this year we're going to, we're going to expand that there. So once we get, once the word gets out, we have schools contacting us 
that understand what we're doing and need to help, want to help, but we only are working with those schools that have kids that can't afford private tutors. We're trying to level the playing field. It's it's called the achievement gap. Achievement gap is the difference in the scores between kids without money and kids with money. And that's a big uh, national crisis right now. It's in the news every day. And that's what we're hoping to, to make a dent in. Yeah. Well, Barry, that's awesome. That's a great initiative. Thank you for doing that. And uh, thank you for doing the, the uh, seven mile deal talk podcast it was very informative and I, I appreciate your time. My pleasure. And thanks for having me, Leroy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 